Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst, except for our special horror-adjacent bonus episodes once a month. This week we're watching a horror-adjacent short uh, because February is the short month. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? I am doing good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nice to be home. Mm, I yes. spent the weekend plus a couple of days over at my mom's house uh, to look after her 17-year-old dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was, um, you know, a nice little break, but it's nice to be home. How yeah. are you? I could be better. Um, I had like a week-long depressive episode, yeah. which I was rendered like unable to do work. Like I just, I I could get like one thing done per day or like more if there was something like actively happening that like needed my, you know, attention right that second. Um, Because adrenaline is how I power through when I need to do work uh, and I'm depressed. Um, So I have a ton of work now on my plate that is due in the next couple of days that I'm just going to need to like, buckle down and power through because I should have been getting it done earlier when I was depressed and I'm just sort of coming out of that but now I have like stress induced like stomach pains and things uh so you know I could be doing better well I've had a bad time while you were away (laughs) these things may or may not be correlated (laughs) Even though you're feeling bad because you only got one thing done each day while you were going through that episode, that's still one thing. And I think that is good. And I think you don't need to beat yourself up, but I understand why your brain is doing that. Yeah. I I don't know as I'm like beating myself up. I just really wish I could have pulled it together. And it it really is that feeling of like, you know, when, when you have a deadline coming up and you're like, yeah, that's like a week away. That's like two weeks away. And then, oh shit, that's in like two days. Yeah, no, I I get it. Um, But I'm glad you're feeling a bit better. Thanks. And I think tonight's short is going to make you feel even better because it has some of your favorite people. Yes. Uh, So Sarah did the Patreon poll for our horror adjacent bonus episode for February and loaded it up with shorts um, because February is the short month. And by an overwhelming majority, uh, the winner was Hair Raising Hair, a Mary Melodies short from 1946. And I am a big Looney Tunes, Mary Melodies, Warner Brothers animation fan. I grew up with these cartoons, um, not just like on TV. Um, I was young enough, like I'm a 90s kid, so I was young enough to still watch those cartoons in reruns on TV on like regular network television. Yeah, I feel like Saturday morning's Teletoon just had like back-to-back Looney Tunes stuff. Well, in, um, in 2000... Uh, the Bugs Bunny and Tweety show was canceled and the rights for all the 
Bugs Bunny cartoons for TV went to Cartoon Network. Mm, um, that would explain. Yeah. But um, getting ahead of myself there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I grew up as a 90s kid and the Looney Tunes were big in the 90s thanks to... Space Jam. Well, <laughs> thanks to like a weird licensing deal that put them on a bunch of like sportswear for like Adidas or Nike or, you know, someone like that, which then led to Space Jam. But also old cartoons were a way for me to connect with my grandfather. Um, he had a ton of tapes. Um, they were all of public domain cartoons. So the quality was trash. And I grew up with these. Um, and some of the Warner Brothers cartoons have fallen into the public domain over the years. So I got to kind of grow up with those. And yeah, they're just like really good. I had a tape, like a, a Bugs Bunny VHS tape as well. That was kind of like a best of VHS tape. So like all my favorites come from that. Yeah, I just really love Bugs Bunny. It, it's going to be a weird episode because we're going to have a lot of setup here as I expound about the Warner Brothers cartoons. And then we're going to go watch like an 11 minute cartoon. It's less than 11, yeah. actually. It's like um, seven. So I would be safe to assume that you've seen Hair Raising Hair before, the first appearance of Gossamer. Yes. Yeah. So the reason this is horror adjacent is because it is the first appearance of the monster Gossamer, uh, as well as some other details that I'll get into later. Um, I have seen this before. I've also seen its 1950s semi-remake uh, where the monster is named Rudolph. He's actually not named in this short. That being said, this wasn't one of the cartoons I had on tape as a kid. Okay. So I didn't get to watch it like over and over and over again. I like Gossamer as a character in like the classic cartoons. He's funny. Um, the whole joke of him really is just that he's a big pile of red hair with some tennis shoes. But I have to admit that I really love the very different maybe controversial characterization of Gossamer on the Looney Tunes show. Oh yeah. Where he's just a little kid basically. Yeah. But in like this big body. Yeah. The Looney Tunes show was like, it was from the 2010s and it was basically like doing Looney Tunes as like a sitcom, uh, essentially with Bugs and Daffy living in the same house. And Gossamer was characterized as like this big giant, like innocent little child, which I quite enjoyed. But anyways, yeah, so I've seen this before. Um, Sarah, have you seen Hair Raising Hair before? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Looney Tunes are in that weird place in my head where it's like, I've probably seen it, but I wouldn't be able to be like, oh, yeah, Hair Raising Hair, that specific cartoon. Right, yeah. Um, at the very least, I've probably seen parts of it, mm. um, but I feel like it's a safe guess that I have. The only two Looney Tunes cartoons that I can remember by name mm. is What's Opera Doc and The Rabbit of Seville. Okay. Because those are my two favorites. I, I knew that What's Opera Doc was going to be in there because it's a very memorable title. And then I was like curious what the second one would be. And my money was on Duck Amuck. But, yeah, Duck um, Amuck is good. Is that the one where uh, he fights the pencil? Yeah, it's the one where, where it's the fourth wall breaking one. Yeah, cool. Yeah. I really do like that one as well. But when I think of like, what are the names that I can be like, oh sure. yeah, I really like that one. I, I don't think of that. So early in our relationship, which like we've been together for... 
A very long time. 14 years now. So, you know, early is relative. But early in our relationship, you really hit a home run by getting us tickets to go see um, Looney Tunes cartoons with the Calgary Philharmonic Orchestra, like giving like the like a live rendition of the scores. Yes. And the scores are like a big part of these old cartoons. That's the tunes in Looney Tunes and exactly. the melodies in Merry Melodies. <laughs> exactly. Like, like I think, you know, obviously the joke of the name Looney Tunes is it's a play on like cartoons. Like these are some zany cartoons. These are some Looney, Looney ass tunes. Um, <laughs> these tunes, they're Looney. But like the word tunes in the name is spelt like a, a song, like a tune that you hum. And that is because... The names of these series are actually parodying a Disney thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's all these cultural references mm-hmm. in Looney Tunes cartoons. Like Looney Tunes cartoons, the classic ones of the 40s and 50s and so on, you know, were kind of that era's equivalent to like DreamWorks, basically. Like the, Lo- the Warner Brothers Disney rivalry of the 40s was kind of the like DreamWorks Pixar Mm-hmm. rivalry of its day in terms of like one studio that was known for like very um original and then the other one that would joke about it well i was gonna like referential yeah i was gonna characterize it sort of as like genuine versus sarcastic sure um so there's all these cultural references in old looney tunes cartoons that a lot of people just like don't get there's like a lot of people my age who have grown up like knowing certain voices as like stock character voices without knowing that they're like actually meant to be a joke on a specific person, which is something we can talk about with this particular cartoon. But to sort of bring it all back to where it all began, Walt Disney didn't invent animation, but listen, we'll be (laughs) here all day if I have to start with who invented animation. So Walt Disney had his popular Mickey Mouse cartoons that he started basically alongside the advent of sound cinema. Um, And in 1929, he began a second series of cartoons called Silly Symphonies. Now, these were one-off cartoons set to music uh, that did not feature continuing characters like the Mickey Mouse series did. And the idea for doing these was the brainchild of Walt Disney and a theater organist named Carl Stalling. Yes. Carl Stalling, um, he was born in 1891, eight years after his parents had immigrated from Germany to Missouri. Now, his father made his living as a carpenter in Lexington, uh, and growing up there is when Carl quickly took to music, learning the piano at age six. By age 12, he started working at the local silent movie house to do the piano accompaniment, um, and he would also be the theater organist at the local like stage theater. By age 20, he was in Kansas City at the movie theater. He was hired to play music for silent films, but often he would like improv his own shit. When we we talked about this very early on in the podcast, but when silent films would go out, um, there would be music that people were encouraged to like 
have an, an organist or something on site to play to. And Stalling would be like, this is good, but what if I threw in like a riff here or there? And sometimes those riffs would be like riffing off of a popular song at the time. One day, Stalling was doing this improv thing at the theater, combining the contemporary music with the uh, with some of his own original work as well. And in the audience was Walt Disney, who would later approach Stalling, and they, you know, struck up a nice friendship. Uh, whenever Disney films were going to play at this theater, Disney specifically requested Stalling to be the organist for those. Though Disney moved to California, they did keep in touch. And he would hire Stalling to compose scores for two short films in 1928. Uh, and these are two very early Mickey films, Plain Crazy and Gallopin' Gaucho. Yeah. Stalling was happy to make the leap to composing as uh, the advent of sound film, as you put it, meant that his current career's days were numbered. With this career change and a move from Kansas City to L.A., Stalling invented the process as in like the step-by-step part that he um the step-by-step procedure of creating a film score as you said with disney they came up with the idea for silly symphonies where the music would match the action on screen and they showed that this was possible with the very first silly symphony in 1929 the skeleton dance now his process was basically with the whoever was coming up with the story for the short, they would rough out the idea and a story. Then Stalling would compose music, and then the animation was made to match, which uh, I didn't realize. I thought it was the other way around, mm. animation, then the music. With developing the Silly Symphony style, Stalling would help streamline the sound process and synchronization process at Disney, particularly with the tick system. Uh, now, notably, Stalling credits the specific like click track tick system to sound effects artist Jimmy McDonald, um, who I'm not going to be talking about today because, you know, you have to draw boundaries somewhere. But Stalling didn't come up with the tick system. And basically, it was that... In the film strip, there would be ticks put in using like, you know, a hot needle or whatever. So that way you were able to synchronize what's playing on screen with the sound. Yeah, this is basically still used today. Obviously not by punching holes in the film with a hot needle, but (laughs) like the, the premise of this is still used today. Yeah, this makes... Stalling, um, one of the very first people who would compose to a metronome, um, because that's how you would figure out synchronization. Right. After working on around 20 films over about two years, Stalling would leave Disney um, at approximately the same time as Ub Iwerks, though he would continue to freelance for Disney while working at the Iwerks studio. Stalling would work with Iwerks at his studio until 1936 when that studio closed and Stalling and Iwerks both headed to Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, Silly Symphonies continued for 75 entries until 1939. Um, Over the course of its history, it was handled by Columbia and then United Artists and then RKO. 
it frequently was a test bed for Disney to innovate animation on a technical level, um, such as Three Strip Technicolor, mm-hmm. which Disney had the exclusive contract for for like two years. It also is a place where Disney was able to invent and perfect the multiplane camera technique to give like dimension to uh, two-dimensional images. And, you know, with Silly Symphonies ending in 1939, the whole concept of like cartoons set to music, you could kind of say that like Fantasia in 1940 is like a feature length Silly Symphony, basically. The success of Silly Symphonies brought many imitators such as MGM's Happy Harmonies, Universal's Swing Symphony, and Warner Brothers' Looney Tunes. So you can see the like, you know, it's it's adjective synonym for music, right? That's the the title yeah. style. Looney Tunes was originally created by Leon Schlesinger and animators Hugh Harmon and Rudolf Ising in 1930. Harmon and Ising left for MGM in 1933, but Slicinger continued with new animation talent, developing characters like Porky Pig and Daffy Duck for Looney Tunes, while the separate Merry Melodies series was for like one-shot ideas. So very similar to the way that Disney had like Mickey Mouse cartoons and then Silly Symphonies. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea for like both series was that they would take advantage of Warner Brothers' music catalog. Um, Warner Brothers had songs that were in their movies, and they also had like their own, um, you know, record label deals and things like that. Warner was, was like basically the first studio to really go all in on sound, and mm-hmm. so they had like a lot wrapped up in records and record deals and things. So the early Looney Tunes and later Merry Melodies all had to like work in a popular current Warner Brothers song but ultimately like the animators found this extremely frustrating (laughs) because they had to like stop the momentum of their cartoons kind of like dead in order to have the song they weren't really like I guess as with it in terms of integrating the songs into the shorts as like Max Fleischer with his partnership with like Cab Calloway. Mm -hmm. Um, The Looney Tunes developed like a style of humor that was very much based in like vaudeville East coast, like city humor with lots of like dialogue and slapstick. And so stopping to like sing a song that had lyrics was putting a damper in their style. Starting in 1934, Uh, Mary Melodies started to be produced in color. So the main distinction between the two was Mary Melodies was in color and Looney Tunes was in black and white. But the distinction between the two series became lessened after the introduction of characters like Elmer Fudd and Bugs Bunny in Mary Melodies. So now both series had continuing characters. And then Looney Tunes switched to color in 1943 and so by that point there really was no distinction between the two of course integral to all of these cartoons was their scores uh which starting in 1936 were by carl stalling yeah and that trouble with integrating these 
contemporary songs is a pain point that Stalling is very uniquely suited to solving. So as I said, Stalling had come over to Warner Brothers with iWorks, and he really truly made his mark with being able to bring in these contemporary themes. Once Stalling was brought in, he was like the person. He would basically be producing an average of one new score each week to go with each cartoon. And he would remain at Warner Brothers for 22 years and would retire in 1958. So he has over 600 animation films to his name to kind of give you an idea of how much he was making. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny because like he's the guy who, you know, pioneered silly symphonies with Walt Disney and like, you know, pioneered like the Mickey Mousing style of score. But like it's his work with Looney Tunes that is the guy's like legacy, I guess. And I think that's because his trademark was being able to do um, like incorporate the contemporary music or do what everyone tended to call a musical pun Mm. with a a reference to a piece of music, whether that's contemporary or older uh, to punctuate some kind of scene or action. Um, And the way that Stalling would do this is I think he understood the animators pain point of, well, you don't want to just like stop and do a two minute song and Stalling found a way to bring in these musical references that would take up anywhere from two to four seconds to two minutes. Um, So you could get a lot more in, but you could also match the action that was going on. Because, as you said, like, Looney Tunes tended to be um, (laughs) manic to gentle, you know, a huge amount of range. And so having a musical style that would kind of match with that would help. Now, there are some members of the team who didn't always appreciate this. Um, The ability to like quickly reference something had occasionally ruffled the feathers of director Charles Jones. Mm. um, Interesting. Who uh, he he's quoted in a few interviews saying that he felt some of these references were a little too obvious or overused like uh, the example that he kept referring to was using a theme from a song called Lady in Red when a lady in red would show up. Sure. He's like, that's a little too obvious. And the fact that it would, like, in his mind, it happened every time. People actually sat down to look at, like, well, how often did Lady in Red or these other ones get used? And it's not as frequent as Jones recalled. Mm. Um, But there was, like, you know, I think for Jones in particular as well, he's Chuck Jones has always been someone who looks forward. And so when he feels like something's getting too repetitive, he wants to switch it up. Um, and I think that's where his frustration hmm. is maybe coming from there. Interesting, because, yeah, I definitely associate Chuck Jones as one of the directors who used Stallings' talents the best. Mm-hmm. Because, like, the thing that always struck me about Looney Tunes' music by Carl Stalling was the way that they would reference classical music. Yes. I think that like most of like middle America's education in classical music for decades came from Looney Tunes cartoons. And it's really ironic given that like audiences rejected Fantasia from Disney, which had all this classical music. Um, And what Disney took away from that is like, oh, we were being too pretentious. Middle America doesn't want classical music. And so his like follow up 
um, you know, like Melody Time and and stuff, uh, the follow-up package films all used like very contemporary music. But I feel like the secret to getting classical music to Americans was like putting, like timing it to gags in stuff like What's Opera Doc and Rabbit of Seville, like you mm-hmm. said at the top of the show. Yeah, Rabbit of Seville, uh, Stalling was responsible for. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that idea of like, using music to go to even full-blown parodies all kind of originates from Stalling and his style. Uh, So Stalling passed away in 1972 at age 81. Yeah, so by 1942, Looney Tunes, as produced by Leon Sleisinger's Termite Terrace Animation Studio, had surpassed Walt Disney as the most successful producer of animated shorts. You had... Characters like Daffy Duck and Porky Pig in Looney Tunes. You had Elmer Fudd and Bugs Bunny in Merry Melodies. Once Looney Tunes transitioned to color in 1943, those characters started intermingling. Um, By 1945, they were all appearing in each other's cartoons. And the only real difference between the two series was the titles and the theme tune used. Um, Looney Tunes uses the merry-go-round broke down. while Mary Melodies uses Merrily We Roll Along. But the actual shorts were basically assigned to either series at random after Looney Tunes switched to color. Through the 1940s, uh, Sleishinger started to have labor disputes with a number of talented directors and animators. An attempt at unionization led to a strike. And with um, directors leaving for other studios and things getting too, I guess, hot for him, Sleishinger sold the studio to Warner Brothers for $700,000 in 1944. That would be about $12 million today. Uh, And that led to other directors also jumping ship after Jack Warner assigned Edward Selzer to be the new producer for the series now that it was in-house. Many of the animators found Selzer to be humorless, meddling, hypocritical, and boring. (laughs) So The worst insult of them all. Right. So once you kind of had the exodus before the sale because of the labor issues and the exodus after the sale because of the new producer, uh, the animation directors who remained were, in descending order of the budgets allotted to their departments, Chuck Jones, Frizz Freeling, and Robert McKimson. This led to those three directors developing very distinct styles, with Jones's cartoons using very sophisticated visual humor, Freeling's going for slapstick, and McKimson relying on witty dialogue. Selzer was notably often wrong about what audiences would like. He insisted that pairing Sylvester and Tweety was a bad decision. Um, you fool. <laughs> the first cartoon that paired them won an Academy Award for Best Short Cartoon. Um, he also insisted that audiences would find the Tasmanian Devil too repulsive 
to be a recurring character and only brought the character back for more cartoons after Jack Warner told him that no audiences love Taz. And he also insisted that there was nothing funny about camels, bullfighting, or skunks who spoke French. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know about the camels, but those two other things are like key in my mind about Looney Tunes for some reason. So, I mean, I know why, but it's just very funny to me. The reason is because generally when cells are declared something not to be funny, the animation directors took that as a challenge. Ah, fantastic. Yeah, so a lot of these shorts that use these elements exist because he'd be like, don't do this, this isn't funny. Now, the short we're watching today, Hair Raising Hair, was directed by Chuck Jones, or Charles M. Jones, as he is uh, frequently credited, but commonly referred to by fans as Chuck Jones. Um, He had, of course, by this point, risen to a position of prominence, in the studio, but he definitely like started from the bottom, you know, born in Spokane, Washington in 1912. He moved to Los Angeles with his family at six months old as a child. um, He often had access to high quality pencils and paper, like tons of the stuff um, for drawing because of his father's succession of failed businesses, which left behind scores of unused letterhead. Oh, sure. Yeah. At one point in uh, art school as a teen, uh, one of Jones's teachers told him like, you know, you got to do like a a hundred thousand drawings that are just guaranteed to be shit before you start producing anything that's good. And Jones was like, oh, I'm ahead of the game then. I think I've done about 200,000 drawings. (laughs) Now, Jones's first job out of art school was at Ub Iwerks studio um, for the period when Iwerks had left Disney and started his own studio which Iwerks didn't stay at Warner Brothers long. Um, He eventually went back to Disney. Uh, But at Iwerks Studio, Jones worked his way up from cell washer to painter in black and white to painter in color to in-betweener. In 1933, he joined Sleisinger's studio as an assistant animator and then was promoted to animator in 1935 under director Tex Avery. He moved to Bob Clampett's unit in 1937 and then was promoted to director himself in 1938. Now, at first, Jones was ambitious. Uh, I don't think he ever stopped being ambitious, but he was too ambitious for, you know, his reach exceeded his grasp in the early days. He wanted to make cartoons that would rival Walt Disney's in quality and like fluidity of animation and all of this kind of stuff. And this led to very slowly paced cartoons and a directive from Leon Sleisinger himself, try to be more funny. Oh, no. (laughs) The breakthrough for Jones was the Dover Boys in 1942. The Dover Boys. I love the Dover Boys, Ben. Confound those Dover Boys. Oh, how I hate them. I hate Tom. I hate Dick. This cartoon had breakneck pacing and gags and used techniques like limited animation and smearing. Now, those were sort of like no-no techniques at that time because they were seen as like shortcuts that were sort of beneath, you know, a studio like Slicinger's. And so Slicinger was so unhappy with Jones's like 
use of those techniques, even though Jones is using those techniques for like stylistic purposes rather than cost cutting purposes. Yes. But Sleisinger was so unhappy that he was actually going to fire Jones, but World War II led to a labor shortage and he just like couldn't basically. Jones was a major part of the effort to unionize the studio, the success of which led to Slicinger selling to Warner Brothers. Ironically, though, as a director, Jones couldn't actually join the union once it was formed uh, because he was management. Yeah. Now, Hair Raising Hair stars Bugs Bunny, uh, the biggest star to come out of the Warner's animation of the Golden Age. Now, the character of Bugs Bunny was not created by Jones, but first appeared in a prototype form in the Looney Tunes cartoon Porky's Hair Hunt in 1938, directed by Ben Hardaway, um, who was frequently referred to as Bugs. That was his nickname. Voiced by Mel Blanc in a style similar to what he would later use for Woody Woodpecker, uh, the unnamed rabbit filled the role played the year before by Daffy Duck in Porky's Duck Hunt, a cartoon by Tex Avery, which had introduced the Daffy Duck character. The prototype version would continue to appear through three or four more cartoons with an evolving character design from animators like Charlie Thorson and Ted Pierce, who referred to the design on their model sheets as Bugs's Bunny. After meeting Elmer Fudd in Elmer's Candid Camera in 1940, a Merry Melody short by Chuck Jones, both characters were redesigned by animator Bob Givens into sort of their modern forms for Tex Avery's A Wild Hair later that year. Um, that was another color Mary Melody's cartoon. That cartoon introduced Bugs's Humphrey Bogart-influenced voice, the What's Up Doc catchphrase, the carrot munching inspired by Clark Gable in It Happened One Night, and also solidified the character such that A Wild Hair is considered to be the first appearance of Bugs Bunny. It was also nominated for an Oscar. And so um, I've mentioned him already, but like a big part of Bugs's success, I think, is the vocal performance by Mel Blanc. Yeah, like I understand that there are other people who work at the studio, but when I think of Looney Tunes from Warner Brothers, I think Chuck Jones and I think Mel Blanc. Mm. Mel Blanc uh, was actually born Melvin Blank. Wait, um, really? Yeah, Melvin huh. Blank huh. Uh, on May 30th, 1908, so my birthday, hmm. um, which is really cool. I didn't know that. Uh, he was born in San Francisco, and then he moved with his family to Portland when he was a teen. He had always enjoyed doing voices, impersonations, and different dialects. Melvin started smoking at age nine. Wow. And continued a, uh, a pack-a-day habit for most of his life. And yet, one of the greatest voice actors of our time. <laughs> it was a different time. In high school, Melvin Blank would change his last name to Blanc, uh, because a teacher said that he wouldn't amount to anything, just like his name, Blank. He's like, I'll show you. <laughs> In addition to voices, Melvin had a, uh, a quite a fondness for music. After graduating high school in 1927, he would be a conductor of orchestras. Huh. He's 19. Huh. 
I didn't uh, know that. <laughs> while performing across Washington, Oregon, and California in vaudeville. That tracks. Yeah, which feels like that really makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. This vaudeville work got his foot in the door into radio in Portland, where he would showcase talents as uh, providing multiple voices. Now, he would change stations in Oregon in 1933 to create his own original program called Cobweb and Nuts with his uh, newlywed wife, Estelle, and they would do Cobweb and Nuts for about two years before heading to L.A. to the uh, L.A.-based station KFWB in 1935, which was owned by Warner Brothers. Oh, Now, Blanc was a regular on many different programs, particularly uh, the one that I'll call out here is the Jack Benny program. Oh, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. And he was on that radio program until 1955 and followed Jack Benny to the television version, which aired through the 70s. Yeah, Jack Benny's humor is very Looney Tunes-y, like very Bugs Bunny kind of humor in my mind anyway. Yeah, uh, I guess because of the um, success of the Jack Benny TV show, uh, CBS would give Mel Blanc his own show, which would run from 1946 to 47. Huh. Which uh, I didn't know. Yeah, neither did I. In 1936, Blanc joined Leon Schlesinger uh, at his productions, where he would begin to voice cartoons for Warner Brothers. Through networking as like, hey, it's a company party, whatever, Blanc would meet Carl Stalling and many directors like Tex Avery and Frizz Verlang. Now, his first starring role for um, these Warner Brothers cartoons uh, came in 1937's Porky's Duck Hunt, where he played Porky Pig, taking over the role from uh, the previous voice actor and debuting Daffy Duck. Mm-hmm. He quickly became Warner Brothers' go-to guy and would play Bugs Bunny as he was going through that metamorphosis all the way to uh, his final incarnation with 1940s A Wild Hair. That same year, Blanc would voice some stuff for Universal, for Woody Woodpecker, notably like The Laugh. Seeing that Blanc was branching out, Warner Brothers quickly established an exclusivity contract with him, though Blanc's laugh would still be used in Woody Woodpecker cartoons. Yeah, if you like watch the very first Woody Woodpecker cartoons, it's really obvious that Blanc is doing the voice. Um, And then there's this like gap where Universal didn't produce Woody Woodpecker cartoons and he sort of came back and has like a very different voice, but that laugh is the same laugh. Exactly. Now, this is just me armchair theorizing, but I think that exclusivity contract had Mel think about the intellectual rights Mm. to his vocal work. Um, And so he became quite a proponent about protecting the rights to his performances. At that time, it was very unusual for a voice actor to get any sort of credit. But after being denied a raise in 1944... Mel Blanc negotiated and was able to begin receiving screen credit as uh, voice characterizations by Mel Blanc in front of specifically just Bugs Bunny cartoons. Um, Then in 1945, he would get that credit in front of Porky Pig and Daffy cartoons as well. And by 1946, any cartoon that used his voice. Yeah. 
I mean, basically, you know, if you think of the classic Looney Tunes characters, Porky Pig was originated by another actor and then Blanc took over. Elmer Fudd was played by a different actor. And then everybody else is just Mel Blanc. Exactly. Yeah. He's integral to it. And I think whether or not he kind of considered it as paving the way by him negotiating for credit and showing that like this is his intellectual property Mm. in a way like his performance is his um and fighting for that it uh paves the way for a lot of further achievements by voice actors being recognized as legitimate actors oh yeah for sure i mean if you talk to like anyone our parents generation the only voice actors they can name will probably be mel blanc and like Walt Disney, because everyone knew that Disney did Mickey's voice. Yeah. And that's probably it, unless they're like, you know, a huge animation uber nerd or something, like a statistical irregularity that should not be counted. <laughs> the spider's charge of animation. Right, exactly. But I think, you know, like you said, the thing that him getting credit did was it meant you could watch those cartoons and go, oh, like someone does the voices. Like Bugs Bunny isn't just like, a thing conjured out of air like someone does the voice and you can aspire to be a voice actor because you know it's a job right exactly now that exclusivity with warner brothers ended in 1960 and while blanc would continue working at the studio he would expand his horizons to hannah barbera with barney rubble and many other roles many other roles (laughs) (laughs) He would also continue working with Chuck Jones when Jones started his own company called Sib Tower 12, where uh, he would originate the voices for Tom and Jerry uh, in 1963. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, Tom and Jerry had been around for a very long time, like 30 years by then. They just hadn't talked. Yeah. Now, um, this is really cool to me, Um, this, this story. In 1961, in January, Mel Blanc had a really terrible car accident on uh, Sunset Boulevard. It was a head-on collision. He fractured his pelvis and his legs, and it was so bad that he actually fell into a coma. And for two weeks, like, his wife, Estelle, his son, Noel, had no luck breaking him out of it. Then one day, a neurologist was like, let's try something different. And he went up to Mel Blanc and said, how are you doing today, Bugs Bunny? And a weak voice responded, yeah, what's up, Doc? I can't do a a good impression. Hmm. Um, And then the neurologist asked about uh, Tweety and Mel Blanc would respond in Tweety's voice. Um, There's a really fantastic interview from Radiolab uh, with Blanc's son, Noel, Um, called what's up doc where he goes more into this story and it's just it's so cool and i really like it and it makes me feel a little emotional yeah um it's a good story it's really good and i love it so much um just the the power of art and voices um with that breakthrough with the neurologist uh, mel blanc came out of his coma he still had a long recovery process he was basically in a full body cast because he was so vital as a voice actor, there were some people who would like try to fill in, especially while he was in the coma, like his son tried to fill in as Barney on the Flintstones. But ultimately, they're like, we can't do this without email. So um, there are 
I guess, some scenes of the Flintstones that uh, Barney's voice was recorded in the hospital. Oh. Um, and they also set up kind of a, a makeshift recording studio at Mel Blanc's home so he could record at home. Mm. Now, Blanc would continue working on new shows with his classic characters through the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, through the 80s, he started to begin to pass the torch of characters to other actors, just kind of like one at a time. As a Canadian, I am obligated to say that he uh, had a cameo in the 1983 movie Strange Brew as the voice of the father of Bob and Doug McKenzie. And Mel's final recording would be for the Jetsons, the movie, for uh, 1989-1990. The reason why in the 80s he started passing characters off to other actors is because in 1985, he was diagnosed with emphysema, and so he quit smoking. A few years later, 1989, he had this lingering cough, and it just wouldn't go away. So he went in to see his doctor, and it turned out he had coronary artery disease. And so he spent about two months in hospital and would pass away on July 10th, 1989. And on his tombstone, it reads, that's all, folks. I didn't think I would get so emotional about Mel Blanc, but he, I don't know. It's like his voice is so tied to a lot of like childhood memories and nostalgia and stuff. So very cool guy. So by 1942, uh, Bugs was the undoubted star Mm-hmm. of Mary Melodies. Like his star just shot through the roof. He only appeared in color, uh, aside from those early prototype appearances. And so he never appeared in Looney Tunes at all until that series transitioned to color. Bugs's easygoing personality where he is affable until pushed too far and then relentless in punishing his tormentors appealed to World War II era American audiences. Like many pop culture figures of his day, he appeared in military propaganda. He was inducted into the Marine Corps as a master sergeant. Like literally? Yeah, like literally. Oh my goodness. Um, This also happened with Daffy Duck. Like Daffy Duck has like a U.S. Navy record or whatever. He was also like the mascot for a lot of like U.S. Air Force bases and squadrons. Uh, His design, uh, his visual design, continued to evolve as well. Uh, Robert McKimson created a new design in 1942 that was initially only used by Bob Clampett before spreading to other directors. And then McKimson designed the character again when he became a director, and Chuck Jones had his own slight variation. Hair Raising Hair was produced for the Merry Melodies series in 1946, and it is in fact the final use of Jones's Bugs Bunny design, after which McKimson's design became the official finalized version. Um, you talk about like how long Blanc was voicing Bugs Bunny for, and it's something where like you don't notice the variations in the voice until um, in the 80s they started doing these like movies um yeah that were like compilation uh sort of movies where like there was like a framing narrative and they did this with like the looney tunes show as well yeah um so that like they could show older material but it was framed in the like bugs bunny reading a thousand and one arabian nights or something like that yeah like i'm pretty sure there's one where it's 
like the conceit of the movie is that like Bugs is on the phone, like giving an interview about his life to someone else. And they just keep, you know, cutting to old cartoons to fill in the flashbacks basically. And those are where you really notice the changes in design and voice over the years, because they'll have the like 1980s modernized design and it'll be Blanc's voice, you know, 1980. Yeah. With his emphysema and everything. And then you're cutting to like 1940s bugs and you can really hear it, right? Hair-Raising Hair was written by Ted Pierce, uh, who worked with all uh, three of the post-1944 directors, but is most associated with Robert McKimson. It is the first appearance of the character Gossamer, as we mentioned earlier. And it also features a mad scientist character who is a caricature of Peter Lorre. Yes, Looney Tunes love doing their caricatures. Yeah, typically of actors who were on contract with Warner Brothers. Yeah, well, it's just promotion, right? Right. The other day I was talking to a friend of ours and I was using like sort of a um, creepy mad scientist voice. I was doing a Peter Lorre impression, but my friend recognized it as creepy mad scientist voice, not as Peter Lorre because she's younger and doesn't, no film stars from the forties, which is fine. Um, but it just shows you like the way that some of these impersonations have continued in pop culture memory long after the people that they are referencing have moved on to have shuffled off this mortal coil. (laughs) Well, I remember when we watched, um, the return of Dr. X, which Mm. has Humphrey Bogart as like the mad scientist there. And in that movie, you can really hear and even see where you go from Humphrey Bogart to Bugs Bunny. Yeah, or it's like the moment when you see it happen one night for the first time and you've got yes. Clark Gable on the side of the road chomping on a carrot because like... Because it, there's like, he's just chomping on a carrot and you're like, wait a minute, is this where Bugs yeah. gets his carrot? Like, yeah. it's, it's so fun to, when you see the pieces come together. Yeah, because rabbits don't eat carrots. Yeah, they do. In real life. They. It, it's like how cats don't drink milk. Well, they're not supposed to drink milk, but, but we people have all, feed them milk. Because they That's see it in other, cartoons. Yeah, well, okay. So my other favorite example of this is um, people who use the word Nimrod to mean someone who's stupid. But um, that's a, a name from the Bible. Yes. Nimrod was a mighty hunter in the Bible. And in a Bugs Bunny cartoon, he calls Elmer Fudd a real Nimrod as like a sarcastic reference. Like, oh, you're a real good hunter, aren't you? Tons of people who grew up with that cartoon don't know the reference. the reference to the Bible. And because it's, you know, on the other side of Bugs probably calling Elmer Fudd like a nincompoop or something, they just assumed it was like another word for moron. And so now people use Nimrod <laughs> to mean like a real idiot, which is just a funny example of that. Now, uh, Gossamer, who makes his first appearance here, was created by Chuck Jones and he goes unnamed in this short actually in production he was referred to as the tennis shoe monster um and he was then referred to as rudolph in a short that kind of is a remake of this one done in the 50s and it wasn't until he appeared as a minion of marvin the martian in a duck dodgers cartoon that he got the name gossamer which was chosen by Chuck Jones because it is the opposite of what Gossamer is, basically. Mm -hmm. 
Hair Raising Hair was released on May 25th, 1946, and it might have played before films like Her Kind of Man or One More Tomorrow. It is currently available on DVD in the Looney Tunes Golden Collection, Volume 1, on Blu-ray in the Looney Tunes Platinum Collection, Volume 3, and it is one of the quarter of Looney Tunes cartoons that survived the HBO Max purges. Um, so you can still see it on HBO Max if you have that service for however long they continue to think that having content on their streaming service is worthwhile. Yeah, man. <laughs> Physical media. Have it. Have it. Uh, well, folks, hopefully you have a means to watch this along with us. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss Hair Raising Hair from 1946, directed by Chuck Jones. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Hair Raising Hair from 1946, directed by Chuck Jones. Ben, lots of laughs in this one. Yeah. If um, it hasn't been clear, it's it's hair raising, as in like your hair on your head, hair as in rabbit. rabbit. Yeah. A lot of Bugs Bunny titles do that. Yeah. Um, and after watching this, I can definitively say I have not seen this before. Yeah, maybe you've seen the 1952 semi-remake, which is called Water, Water, Every Hair. Maybe. Um, that is where he's called Rudolph. Does he go into the castle because of like water flooding and there's like ether uh, involved at one point as a gag? Yes. Okay, so yeah, then I've definitely seen that. Mm-hmm. Um uh, this 1946 one is um, quite interesting <laughs> to think about, uh, which I will get into. What did you think, Ben? So, yeah, um, it's a fun little cartoon. Um, it had you uh, guffawing. Well, yeah, there was a couple jokes that really got me. When they put the Looney Tunes on TV, when they started doing them as like Saturday morning reruns on TV, um, it was the cartoons from 1948 on. So this would not have been one of the reran cartoons. I think it was if you started at 1948, that's when like all of the designs were finalized and everything's all in color and there aren't any like inconsistencies and you also aren't running into like old war propaganda and things like that. But um, it's interesting to think about that might be the reason why you've seen the other one because it's from 52. Yeah, there's some gags I really liked in this one. So the the basic premise. Yes. There's a mad, evil scientist uh, who is Peter uh, Peter Laurie adjacent, mm-hmm. and um, his monster is hungry, and so he needs to get Bugs Bunny to him to feed Bugs to the monster. So he winds up this uh, mechanical, sexy babe bunny uh, that draws Bugs into the castle, and then the the monster gossamer is chasing bugs through the house we get some good gags um including one where bugs 
uh, is like a nail aesthetician and is like doing Gossamer's nails, um, which is great. I always like when Bugs gets to do that because it reminds me of like Scooby and Shaggy doing shit mm. like that. I mean, Scooby and Shaggy probably do it because Bugs Bunny did it, right? Yeah, but I'm saying for me, sure, this is why I like the synergy, mm. the parallelism, and eventually <laughs> the way that Bugs escapes is um, throughout the whole thing, he's been like, when we start, Bugs is like, oh, I feel like someone's watching me. And we see that it's because the mad scientist is watching him through like a camera, like a security camera. But halfway through the short, uh, Bugs is like, doctor, I need a doctor. Is there a doctor in the house? And then like a silhouette as if someone in the audience, the film audience is like, I'm a doctor. Then Bugs goes, eh, what's up, doc? Like, just funny. Um, this is while he's being chased. It's, I find that humorous and <laughs> it's weird talking about jokes, Ben. Yeah. Um, and then at the end, the way he uh, defeats Gossamer is by being like, Hey, have you ever felt like you're being watched? Like all those people out there in the audience and Gossamer goes, ah, people and runs away. Mm-hmm. And then Bugs gets tricked by the mechanical babe again. Um, which so that that's the short, basically. I don't know chronology mm. at all, but I want to headcanon that Bugs cross-dressing to evade Elmer Fudd or other villains or antagonists comes from this. Because mm. he's like, this mechanical lady got me, so now I'll go get those guys. I uh, Yeah, I don't know when the first incident of Bugs's cross-dressing occurs. Um, but yeah, Bugs is very horned up in this cartoon. Which is an odd look for Bugs. This kind of behavior I don't normally associate with Bugs. Hmm. I mean, it makes sense, right? He's a rabbit. Yeah. It makes sense. But uh, yeah, he, at the very end, sees the mechanical uh, bunny babe go by and he looks like right at the audience he's like yeah i know she's mechanical and like goes after her still so uh you know for seeing the like cyborg girlfriend craze today (laughs) um yeah bugs bunny doing the plot of her in seven minutes um Some other gags that really got me in this one. Uh, so the the mad scientist looks like Peter Lorre if he had jaundice. They don't really lean into the vocal impression as much as I thought they would. No, more like a little bit with the rhythm, but not like mm. the the sound of it. Yeah, but he definitely looks like Peter Lorre. Um, he kind of like vanishes from the cartoon. Like he lures bugs into the castle, sets Gossamer loose. And then once it becomes a chase thing the mad scientist never shows up again the chase is full of like your standard kind of Looney Tunes gags but I really like the early part of the short when they're really going after like Universal and like these horror movie tropes because he follows this mechanical babe to a castle on like a cliff on a hill um, that has a neon sign over the front door saying evil scientist yeah Um, it's very good it's very good it's very good my other like favorite gag in this is um, they do the like old dark house, someone looking at you through the eyes of the painting gag. Yes. And Bugs catches on and he does the like 
three stooges poke your eyes out thing to the painting and it turns out it was gossamer behind the painting and he kind of like crashes through the wall bugs zips away and then gossamer continues down the hallway and we see bugs in a painting so gossamer his eyes were behind a painting of like a medieval dude this is like bugs in medieval get up in the painting like it's a bunny and gossamer goes to like grab at bugs and bugs like slips out of the painting in such a way that like the medieval clothes are there but he's not and (laughs) like it just it's very surreal and plays with like physics and the 2d nature of these characters in a way that like it's the kind of gag you couldn't do in live action yes you couldn't even do that gag in like 3d animation and really have it work the same way well because the gag is that the portrait's supposed to be 2d yeah right like that's it it works as a visual illusion only because everything's on the same plane right yeah um but yeah that one had me really laughing quite a bit yeah there's not a lot of like characterization for gossamer here but he does get afraid of his own reflection or rather his reflection gets afraid of him yes and runs away in the mirror um and he's kind of like like when bugs will like do something to hurt him, like bash a mallet on his head or something, he'll like stop and cry for a little bit. Like he's. <laughs> yeah, you can see that characterization in that um, 2010s show mm. where Gossamer's a little kid. You can see where they got to there from right. even this very early appearance. Yeah, for sure. And he's just such a unique monster because he really is just like a seven foot tall like blob of red hair with tennis shoes yeah he's like if cousin it was a football player yeah like if cousin it was juicing yeah when you see gossamer you think it's just like he doesn't have arms yes he does have arms they're just like hidden in his hair yeah when he like uses his arms they like emerge from his form which is a very like again very distinctive like animation kind of gag that i really like yeah i don't have like a heck of a lot more to say the short doesn't really like once it becomes a chase it doesn't really play with the horror movie tropes that much anymore when it starts out it's got a very like universal style um title card and like credit sequence and like the peter laurie mad scientist and the like castle and the monster Um, there are some trap doors and like passageways and such bugs calls gossamer dracula at one point uh, Frankenstein? No, I think he says Dracula. He, he does call him Frankenstein at one point, because I remember wanting to yell at the screen, like, it's Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, no, I Dracula stuck out to me because it's like nothing like Gossip. <laughs> um, but once it becomes a chase, it's a lot of the standard kind of like Looney Tunes chase gags of like bugs hiding in things around the house or like various other kind of gags like that there's a running thing where bugs keeps thinking he's defeated the monster and then like exit stage right to come across gossamer like again a little ways down the hall there's some good cases of carl stalling getting to do his musical references Mm -hmm. um like at one point bugs goes jousting um and we get some of the the musical stylings in there um there's some pretty like textbook mickey mousing in yes. this, there's a bit where Bugs is sneaking down a hallway and it does the like classic like doot, 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 doot. But 
Gossamer is sneaking down the hallway on the other side of the wall and it's like dun 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 and Bugs is able to like triangulate where Gossamer is from like the Mickey Mousing basically and like each time like he's like tapping on the wall with like a hammer and each time he taps it there's a musical note and then he finally like figures out where Gossamer's face is and just slams with the mallet and it's it's very much like if you need to show someone what Mickey Mousing is like it is textbook yeah and what I think is interesting with and that you see with like Looney Tunes especially the way that they spoof and goof around with these things and poke fun at uh, like traditional animation as in like Disney animation is that they turn it on its head in some sort of way. Like the Mickey Mousing isn't just like, this is the style Mickey Mousing about. It's like, no, we're going to have Bugs be aware of that mm. and use that to then hurt Gossamer. Um, so it makes you wonder like how much is Bugs aware of things and, you know, I'm always a sucker for fourth wall breaking, and this movie is full of it. Yeah, Bugs is very clearly aware of the fact that he is in a cartoon. Yes. Um, which is, you know, just one of the appeals of Bugs Bunny, right? Absolutely. Our, our modern day trickster god, <laughs> Bugs Bunny. <laughs> I, I really like Bugs Bunny. I like the <laughs> current conceit of him as being like a fae that you don't want to cross right um like when you were talking about in the context setting that like you know he's like pretty ambivalent towards you until like you cross him and then it's like war yeah and it's like a fae that like you do something wrong to the fae you're fucked right um i think it's just an archetype yeah that, like recurs throughout our culture right totally and i i think like it's a characterization that as you said, like you really feel for with like an underdog feeling of it and like being bullied around and stuff. Yeah, there was always like a strict rule when writing Bugs Bunny cartoons that he had to get pushed first before you could start having Bugs like doing his antics. Mm -hmm. Because if he just starts them on somebody for no reason, he looks like a bully. And so they never wanted him to become unsympathetic in that way. The closest you can get is like he bullies Elmer Fudd pretty quickly without any kind of like pushing too far. But audiences need to remember that Elmer Fudd is trying to shoot and murder Bugs Bunny. So, you know, we're already starting at a place of desperation. An antagonism. Yes. I think the best example of Bugs completely going like this means war mm -hmm. and like going a little too far is when um i don't know the name of it but he's like bugs is playing his banjo oh, minding yeah. his own business and this opera singer who has like this big mansion is like annoyed that he can hear the banjo and he goes over and like destroys the banjo and then bugs just fucking wrecks this guy's life yeah just a hundred percent i fucking love that cartoon um that is Another cartoon that has hair as like the pun name. Oh man. I thought it was um Baton Bunny uh until we watched that. That's long haired hair. Ah. Uh. Um yeah, that's one of my favorite ones. Yeah, that <laughs> that he just like wrecks this guy. Um it's it's great. I fucking love that cartoon. Um yeah, hair raising hair is fun. I wouldn't put it honestly in like my top ten of even like just Bugs Bunny cartoons. Yeah, I think because that's 
unfortunately it falls back on like the classic short mm-hmm. for cartoons structure of chase scene. Yeah. Right. Like that's why um, I could never really get into Tom and Jerry as yeah. a kid. Cause it was just like so repetitive. It's just the same thing. Like when Warner brothers was doing Wiley e. coyote and Roadrunner, they knew that that would get repetitive. So they found ways to always make it something unique and amping it up with what the coyote was doing. Yeah. The thing about like Wiley Cody and Roadrunner was that was Chuck Jones on purpose saying like, how can I distill the cartoon chase formula down to like its barest of essentials and then like build it back up again? Yeah. Right. So it was this very like conscious engagement with that subgenre but i absolutely agree with you on like tom and jerry like i'm sorry folks if there's any like diehard tom yeah, and jerry out there harman icing hanna barbera diehard tom and jerry people i i will acknowledge that like the animation is like technically gorgeous if we're talking about the mgm stuff which is just because mgm had like a lot of money to throw around but those cartoons are fucking boring sorry so it's unfortunate that the short kind of falls into it um, they do do some things to mix it up with like the fourth wall breaking and the, I think when it leans into, it's an old dark house. Like at one point Bugs is like to Gossamer, don't go up there. It's dark up there. <laughs> and like, he's telling the scary monster that he's yeah. afraid of not yet. So there are like elements like that where they kind of mix it up, but mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it's good. It's not great. Yeah. I can see why they did like a second pass on it with water, water, every hair. Um, yeah, this was a lot of fun though. It was a nice fun change of pace from our usual mm-hmm. shtick. And this has been our, our February bonus episode on a horror adjacent piece of media <laughs> <laughs> in March. Uh, we will be watching them from 1954 as voted on by our patrons at patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. The poll for April will be going up shortly um, and we'll figure out what the theme is for that. But if you want to get in on that poll, you can head to our Patreon. Patrons at any level are able to vote. Uh, so if you want to have a say, that's where you want to go. Thank you for listening. Our next regular episode is going to be on the Mexican horror film El Hombre y el Monstro, The Man and the Monster, uh, which features a guy who sold his soul to the devil to become the world's best pianist, but turns into like a Hyde style, like furry monster man if he plays a specific tune. He turns into Gossamer? Not quite. Not quite. Okay. Like the wolf man. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, We will see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.